This episode of the Braving Business Podcast is sponsored by, well, me. I'm PJ Benoit, and I've been in the domestic and international logistics space for over 30 years. If you need any assistance with transportation or logistics, my team and I will jump at the chance to help. Whether it be parcel shipments, e-commerce, pallets and freight, full truckload, international air and ocean, imports, exports, warehousing and distribution, or really anything under the logistics umbrella, we got you covered. For more details, please go to shipwithpj.com. That's shipwithpj.com. Reach out to me there. Mention you found me on this podcast for a special surprise. And one last quick thing. If you enjoyed this episode, please stay on after the show to learn more about the Braving Business Podcast and other great episodes for you to discover. And now, let's get the show started. Well, PJ, how are you, sir? I'm good. I'm good. How are you, sir? I, I am well. Wait, wait a second. What's different about you? Are you wearing know. glasses? I, what, I am wearing glasses. I always wear glasses. I always wear glasses. Are you? Okay. Well, this is what's my different inner, about you? You, you wouldn't inner... come on. To, to, I, there was a shock factor or some surprise, but I'm not seeing it yet. Now, now my feelings are really hurt that you're not noticing that these glasses are... I normally don't have the whole full harry carry effect but i am i am Got going it. for that internally and that's um, what it was reaching down deep to to get that wonderful announcer's vibe i got you is that because we uh recently found out that i'm, I'm gonna have to very casually uh mention it that we recently found out in fact a week ago monday uh that we are a top three percent global podcast so now you need to be a little bit more uh i, I don't got, know debonair is I, that what I, it is? I gotta i gotta try to like create a brand i gotta do something Right. I can't be I just a schlub on the, on the show. I got to do something. So here, I, classes, well, I, I have to do right. something too. I have to ask for a raise PJ. I think given that we are now, you know, in the stature, mm. I think, um, you know, and, and you're the one bringing the Braving Business Podcast to the world. We're going to have to do something uh, about that. Yeah. Let me, let me, let me talk to our advisors. Um, we don't know if it's in the budget, Tom, but uh, mm. we'll, we'll, okay. we'll get back to you. <laughs> See how it goes, Alan. Well, uh, you know, uh, we'll, we'll be introducing our guest, Alan Cohn. He knows a thing or two about ratings, though, Alan. You were uh, you were a TV anchor and you were in TV for many years. Um, were you ever a top 3% global anything? <laughs> no, I'm just joking. Can you tell us about uh, about your experience with ratings? Well, I'll tell you what. The, when I I started a, a show on ABC locally in the Tampa area a couple of years ago, that it was a departure from what I always did because I was I was always an investigative reporter and maybe a fill-in anchor. Uh, and in this new show, I was the anchor and managing editor and we were starting from scratch because we were taking over the seven o'clock hour, which used to be the purview of, of game shows. And, uh, you know, my boss thought that smart conversation about politics and what's happening in the news uh, would do well in the ratings. And uh, it had never been done before locally. I mean, how often do you see a seven o'clock news on a local affiliate uh, that's dedicated to roundtable discussions on, on local and national issues? And it was incredible to watch over the course of time how our ratings exploded. And um, at one point, I was the moderator of a congressional debate uh, in the congressional district for Sarasota Manatee. Uh, in Florida, and we had a 12 share, which is basically Super Bowl rate rating. Wow! And uh, the station was, you know, just amazed. And and you know, I mean, people from around the country were watching this. And and so, you know, on the other hand, you know, I also uh, was a reporter on a, an incredibly great TV news magazine in Miami, and we would do great, great, great journalism. But our ratings were so low, they didn't register. Mm. And and that was depressing. So I, I really kind of, you know, seen it from from both sides. Well, I'll tell you, I, here's my uh, uh, read on it. It's it's a lot of good fortune. I mean, we've had great guests and uh, that's helped. But uh, I didn't anticipate that we'd be doing as well as we are, as quickly as we are. Um, uh, I feel that's extremely we're, we're just, grateful about we're, that. We're touching the hearts and souls of so many people. That's That's what's driving it clearly tall and to be able to have someone like alan on the show just just kind of kind of well that helps that well thing. why don't we why don't we tell our audience who alan is and uh you know absolutely so there. our esteemed awesome guest today is mr alan Cohn, 
A Peabody and Emmy Award-winning journalist, as well as the 2020 Democratic nominee for U.S. Congress in Florida's 15th congressional district. Don't know where that is. Where, where is that, Alan? It's basically the eastern side of, of Tampa. The eastern. Okay. All right. Very cool. Uh, Alan was also the founder of AMC Strategic Communications and is currently the CEO of a very interesting nonprofit called Term Limit the Court which is seeking to bring about term limits on Supreme Court justices. Tal and I, of course, are very excited to delve into this. We haven't really talked about nonprofits uh, or talked to nonprofits on the show, but that's a fascinating world. Definitely uh, looking forward to getting into that. Over a distinguished journalism career spanning over 30 years, Alan has worked for NBC News, CBS News in New York, and ABC News in Florida. For many years, Alan was the lead anchor and managing editor of ABC 7 News at 7 o'clock. He won his Peabody Award, which is, I believe, the highest honor for journalism investigative reporters, uh, for uncovering that there were defective parts being installed on Black Hawk helicopters, endangering the lives of American service members. So thank you for that. Uh, he also earned an Emmy Award in Boston for discovering that a, con a convicted killer was attempting to become a Boston police officer. Definitely want to hear about that. Um, and also another Emmy Award in Miami for winning back benefits for a lost and forgotten Vietnam veteran. A journalist, a candidate for Congress, an entrepreneur, and now a crusader for reforming the Supreme Court. Wow. Alan, thank you. And, and it's a pleasure to have you on the Braving Business Podcast. Well, thank you both for having me. It's an honor. Alan, it's, uh, it's great to have you here. And you've had a, an incredible, very interesting career. Uh, obviously, investigative journalism has been where you've spent most of your career. And then at some point, you made a, a decision with your family to, uh, to run for public office and, and more recently uh, to run a nonprofit that, that has uh, a, a, an interesting and some would say very difficult, possibly, possibly some would say impossible path to becoming uh, becoming something that actually occurs. And and so I, I'd love to hear about this journey. It does seem that the journey is often about doing good uh, in the world or attempting to undo bad. Uh, so tell us, you know, your background, your story. How did you end up moving from, well, getting into investigative journals and begin with, and then moving from there to uh, public, running for public office and eventually seeking to, uh, to influence uh, the public sphere? Well, you know, I've always kind of lived and worked in, in the matrix, matrix between uh, journalism and, uh, and politics going back to my childhood. My dad was a pioneering uh, engineer at, at, at CBS television in, in New York, and my mom was on the, uh, uh, the board of elections or uh, she was a poll worker uh, in suburban uh, New York. And we always talked about politics. And uh, I remember the, the summer I graduated high school, uh, you know, the networks used to hire a lot of kids of employees to uh, go to the Democratic and Republican National Conventions to be gophers. And, and my job was to watch the door of Walter Cronkite's anchor booth. And uh, I was just blown away. Uh, I was blown away by what he did and and who I was getting to meet. And so when I went off to college, you know, that's what I, I studied. And um, and around my school schedule, I got a permanent job at CBS News in New York. And uh, and I was mentored and, and taught by, you know, the great journalists there. And I, I knew that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a reporter. And uh, I eventually went out into the world. And first, I went into all news radio and then uh, television at in Springfield, Massachusetts, at the ABC television station. And really, for at first, I loved the opportunity to experience history firsthand, you know, to cover presidential candidates, to cover races for governor and senator. And, and um, I got into investigative uh, reporting where I, I found that, um, and it, this is just natural, that once you cover a fire, or you cover the president coming to town, um, you know, you, you want to keep broadening your experience and there was a circumstance in uh in springfield where uh a former police lieutenant was accusing the district attorney uh, of being involved with the mafia and 
everybody seemed to know it in that that town. It was never really reported. I'm from New York. You do something like that in New York, it's news. And so I dug into it and uh, uncovered a lot of evidence. And eventually the district attorney who had been in office for 30 years was chased out of office. And I found that my journalism could have a positive impact for the community in, in which I was living and working. And so it became my passion. Uh, you know, I, I uncovered that a priest was accused of killing an, uh, an altar boy. I uh, uncovered a, a huge scandal in Connecticut where there was a ring of workers at the Department of Motor Vehicles selling uh, driver's licenses on the black market to uh, undocumented uh, aliens. And, uh, and that was uh, my way of contributing to the community. I found the work absolutely fascinating. Um, I, I brought you know my experience down here to uh, to Florida, where I continue to to do the same at at, uh, at ABC. Um, but it, two things: number one, I, I think it is natural, no matter what your line of work is, if you are doing something for a living over a period of time, you you continue to uh, wish to grow and um, and do different things. So. My uh, foray in, into the political world was really a natural uh, exercise of that. That uh, and, and plus the fact that you know television journalism and journalism uh, in general are it's a really hard business at this point, uh, and uh, and 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 being willing to serve uh, seemed like a great idea to. Uh, do in in a different way what I've done for many years in terms of trying to make um, the community a, a better place. Wow, wow! Uh, a, a few things. A first of all, you and I have very uh, similar beginnings. Um, I also was in radio um, back in the early days. It wasn't all news. I was more on the music side, but also um, it was. It's great to see that you've made this transition in front of camera because my mom always told me I had a face for radio. So it's kind of why I stayed back there. Um, but also it's so I'm actually super thrilled that you're on today because I think that as a society, just in this is a general statement, but as a society, I think that journalism and journalists in particular have gotten a bad rap over the past 30 years, 40 years, right? Like, I mean, we watch Die Hard every year and the 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 bad person in that show out outside of Hans Gruber is the reporter. Right. And so a lot of reporters, especially now with, with so much social social media and everyone doing their own research on Google, there's a lot that there's a lot that journalism holds. And there's a lot of tenets that journalists are held to that I think aren't being um, appreciated as much about all the, all the measures that you have to go through to actually come forth with a story that is supposed to be valid and double checked or triple checked and, and all that. So I just, I just want to say from, from a, uh, you know, person in the, in the populace to someone who is actually doing the, doing the news and, and actually reporting on real life events, it does matter. And, and, and it is appreciated. So I just want to make a comment about that, I guess. Oh, um, I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's just too, too much today, but, um, with you in particular, your, your diverse experiences, you've been, I mean, just that little, that little part you, you shared fascinating, um, you, you know, involved in journalism, involved in politics, um, in business now, nonprofit, you've obviously encountered many different leaders, Walter Concrete for one of, you know, across the board of, of different genres. Um, what did you learn about leadership? Or, 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 you know, what did you pull from that, from these experiences, especially when it comes to how people build effective teams and or coalitions that are going towards a common goal? You know, I, I've seen all sorts of, of leaders, uh, news directors, management, uh, you know, in, in my experience. And, and I know that the, the best ones have been uh, collaborative. Uh, I mean, I've worked for people who were who were great to work for. And, and Lord knows, you know, the news director at my wedding, uh, the news director I was working for was the best man at my wedding um, because there was mutual respect. Uh, and, uh, you know, on the other hand, I've seen the flip side of that where, where uh, you know, managers uh, have, uh, were so difficult to be around 
uh, screamed and yelled and condescended people that nobody wanted to be there. Um, I, you know, when when I became not just the the anchor but the managing editor of of my own broadcast, uh, and I was you know in charge of of the editorial direction of of the uh, the program, but I also was the boss. I you know I had a staff of people working for me and uh, helped run the newsroom. Um, I. I tried to treat people the way that I, I want to be treated, and, and that is with respect. And it, it, that doesn't mean that there are not occasions where you have to come down on people uh, and and uh, put your foot down. Um, but, you know, I have always had this sense that I wanted to or I tried to treat people the way um, that 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 I was treated. And even when in terms of journalism going after them, uh, you know, um, I have never been the, the kind of reporter that relished the confrontational interview that you you see and, and that ha- has almost become uh, a parody of itself with a reporter tracing somebody down down the street. But I've done my share of them. Um, I, I never did them for, uh, um, uh, you know, effect. I did them because there was no other way to, to get the information. And, you know, I remember uh, one occasion uh, I mentioned uh, busting a ring of employees at, at the Connecticut Department of, of Motor Vehicles, and I had to confront the ringleader in the parking lot of of the the DMV, and I chased her all the way to her car, and uh, the the PR person at the DMV then called. Um, um, I think my boss and the political reporter for the TV station said, you know, why is Alan Cohn accosting my employees in the parking lot? And I remember the response, I was told the response was, well, you know what? Uh, He doesn't do that very often, but when he does, there's probably a a pretty good reason. And, um, you know, and, and I appreciate that because even in circumstances like that, um, I realize even if somebody has done something wrong, um, you know they have lives, they have families, and uh, and and it, 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 I I put you know I realized that when I would be asking the tough questions and going after information uh, that that um, that I needed, um, and and I think that you know is a long winded answer to your question, but I think that's what leadership is 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 all is is about, and and uh, it's how you conduct yourself. Uh, and uh, realizing that no matter what you're doing, you're having an impact on the lives uh, of either the people who are working for you or the people uh, who you uh, are are dealing with in in, in the community. And really, um, that has been you know central to to um, you know how I've conducted myself. And and one other point there, uh, and I really uh, learned this through running political campaigns that. There's a line between um, the experience you bring to whatever endeavor you're involved with, uh, but also listening to good advice of of the people that you're hiring and trusting um, to to help you out. And sometimes there's a confrontation between that because, you know, for instance, in terms of of, of a political campaign, for many years, I was the guy on TV who covered the race, uh, either as a reporter or as a, a manager and uh, anchor and managing editor, and told the public what I thought of a campaign. Uh, and now I was a candidate. And people who work in the political world, who help you run campaigns, consultants, campaign managers, they know the politics. Um, and I was at this interesting intersection that um, that. Yeah, but I also know how it plays in the media, and uh, there's a delicate balance between going with your gut and your experience, but also listening to professionals who uh, whose job it is to to run campaigns like that. So again, that's a long winded answer to your question. <laughs> let me let me let me bring us to a topic that I uh, I I found uh, uh, really interesting as I was looking at your bio and preparing for this interview. Uh, your experience, particularly around the Black Hawk helicopter story, which won you your Peabody, uh, touched on something that we've been covering uh, in prior interviews. We had uh, uh, Ken Bogart, who's the CEO of a company called No Honesty, K-N-O-W, uh, and he talked about the significance and the importance of 
truth telling in business, uh, which is something we've been talking about uh, in other interviews as well. And what you uncovered at a very, very large organization uh, was some significant behavior that uh, is hard to justify, explain, or in any way, shape, or se- uh, shape or form, excuse. Uh, in fact, what you uncovered uh, was people being bad actors um, and endangering lives of troops, almost unthinkable. It's almost beyond evil. I'm not just saying that because I'm I'm a father of a service member. I'm saying it because all of us should find any behavior like that abhorrent. Talk to me about, you know, what you experienced over your career in, 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 in your investigative reporting on that story, which we'd love to hear a little bit more about, as well as other stories about what prompts people in leadership, in business in particular, to go rogue and uh, take their business or uh, um, their employees down a path where they're endangering lives and or just behaving badly. Well, well let me give you a couple of, of examples of that. Uh, the story that, that you referred to, to in, in terms of uh, the Black Hawk helicopters and, and Sikorsky aircraft in, in Connecticut, you know, as an investigative reporter, there are a lot of different ways you get stories. Um, uh, by talking to people, becoming, you know, make re- forming relationships with people at a mutual respect and, and they bring you stories. Uh, sometimes it is people who leave you a telephone message. And with the Sikorsky story, um, you know, we used to have a tip line, you, you know, newspapers have it, TV stations have it, and, you know, and I had to, you know, uh, go through uh, these calls sometimes, you know, 20, 30 at, at a time. And, you know, you can't spend on too, you know, too much time on things that you are either not interesting or you would never be able to prove. But uh, in terms of the Sikorsky story, it began with a, a message left from me saying um, defective parts are getting on board uh, Blackhawk helicopters. I have proof. Please call me. And it was somebody who worked on the production line at at Sikorsky, and I uh, went over to his house uh, one day, and he gave me the file, and it was in black and white because um, included in the information was a document uh, written by um, a, a captain um, who was assigned to Sikorsky from the Defense Department to the president of Sikorsky saying, you know, we are seeing a decline um, in, in quality control on these aircraft with specifics. Uh, and uh, him saying something to the effect, this leads us to believe that we are accepting aircraft with, with serious, you know, um, you know, safety issues. And so right then and there, we knew we had the story. Um, it was still another three or four months before we put it on television because, um, you know, we went and we found experts to talk about that. In this case, it was uh, the former head of uh, production uh, of uh, another another helicopter, the Apache helicopter, who was now a, a professor at MIT, who who guided us through all the documentation we were uh, were, were you know we had and and kept us. Uh, focused on what was significant and maybe, you know, what was not significant. And during that entire process, um, you know, uh, you know, this investigation lasted for, you know, three or four years. I did this huge story that made national news and I was allowed to stay on it uh, for, for three or four years. And every time I had a significant update to the story, um, my management, to its credit, allowed me to do that, even when, you know, other people in the newsroom saying, why is he doing the same story again? Uh, or the salespeople who, who you know, well, Alan, let, let me let me do, let me direct you to the, uh, the the topic that I think is going to be most interesting to our audience, which is why do leaders behave badly? I, I'd love to know what did you learn about that? What what takeaways potentially could you share with the audience about here, here was leadership. I'm, I'm assuming it was more than one individual. There are individuals in leadership positions all the way up to the CEO that potentially knowingly endangered lives. What motivations can, can you share with us what you concluded or what your thoughts are about how do people get to a point yeah. that they behave that badly? This is the the underlying accusation that that um, that was present here. The workers who worked in the factory who assembled the aircraft said that uh, Sikorsky was 
uh, laying off quality control inspectors. Uh, those people whose job it was to take all the, the ball bearings and all the, uh, the subcontracted parts coming into the building and inspecting them before sending them to the production line. It was a cost-saving move. What I found was um, that this process is not unique to Sikorsky, that uh, you know, no matter what you make, um, there is, uh, and, and the, I think the term is smart manufacturing, uh, where you're trusting your subcontractors to uh, to uh, sell you and send you a hundred percent quality materials. And, and you know w- what occurred to me is no process uh, is you know without error. Mistakes are always made. You buy a television that that's defective. So uh, how could this be uh, okay? So it was it, it was you know the accusation was. Sikorsky was was saving money on its manufacturing by in, instead of having their own quality control inspectors, um, uh, basically subcontracting out the the responsibility for uh, quality control to uh, the subcontractors. That was the underlying um, you know issue in terms of why this was happening. Sikorsky uh, said that uh, that you know, what they were doing did not, you know, um, uh, result in, in these issues. Uh, they did say after we we broke this story that they fixed the problem, but we were able to see over the course of uh, of uh, three years that the, the quality, uh, the, the issues were continuing until we were able to prove that aircraft uh, were, were falling out of the sky. And it was so embarrassing that the Defense Department had to put a stop to it. But you know, so uh, you know, as happens so often in business, uh, there there was a motive that that really gets down to dollars and and, and cents and how our economy is changing and um, and and companies are looking for lean manufacturing. I I, I, I want to dig in some more into this because I I don't think at this point yet I've heard what you think was the motivation of individuals. I you know, Sikorsky is a company. Companies are uh, are are um, not a live entity, human beings at the company, the CEO on down. I assume that you were you were reaching out to them for comments, sharing your evidence, asking for uh, for them to respond. Did it feel like a cover up? And and how do you explain individuals willing to put their name, their reputation, their honor uh, on the line if, in fact, they believe um, that they're endangering lives? I, I think the question that I'm trying to get an answer to is. What leads people to behave badly? And it's simplistic, in my opinion, to just say, well, it's money. Uh, maybe it's money for the organization, but individuals were involved in that and made certain decisions. Did, did you ever get a feel for what motivations uh, were driving in individual actors that you were engaging with as you were investigating, in particular in senior leadership positions? But, you know, it, it, what was interesting is for the first three years, Sikorsky would not talk to me on on camera about the issue. They gave me written statements. Um, we were we bent over backwards to be fair about it. we would show them the documents that we uh, obtained and get get comment from them. And they we knew we, we were right in terms of what we were reporting because they never disputed uh, the facts as, as we laid out. But um, this was just. Uh, there was so much on the line. The nation was at war. These these aircraft were desperately needed, uh, and so there was no, uh, you know, members of Congress gave lip service in terms of our 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 reporting uh, in, in terms of cracking down uh, on on Sikorsky. But the need for these helicopters was so great. Um, it was only three years. After when we were able to show aircraft were, were crash landing, that Sikorsky went on camera with their head of quality control and basically was just a, the corporate line that you know we realize that we have a problem. This is not acceptable, and we're doing taking all the steps that that uh, we we have to take to, to to fix the problem. But in terms of of the motivation, um, you know, I I don't know if it was one person in particular who said. You know, put defective parts on on helicopters. It was more of of uh, their belief 
Uh, and this is an industry, you know, throughout every single industry, that lean manufacturing uh, is the, the wave of the future. It, it is how companies remain competitive. And uh, I, I really did not get any more than that in terms of insight, in terms of how they allowed this to to uh, um, uh, to go on for so long. Yeah, it sounds it sounds like they just looked at a cost cutting measure instead of really uh, taking a longer term view of it. And then you also have plausible deniability. Well, that's not on us. We didn't make the parts. They, they sent us defective parts. You know, what was interesting is, you know, I, I got most of my information by really brave employees who snuck documents out in their clothing to, to get them to me. The, you know, the way reporters or the public generally try to get information like this is through freedom of information requests that could be wrapped up uh, in, in, uh, uh, litigated for 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 many years, and but eventually, and this was under the Bush administration, uh, that they w- got so frustrated that three years later they were uh, called me and said, "We want to give you everything you request in terms of documentation." And it was Sikorsky Aircraft who then sued the Def- Department of Defense to try to stop the release of that information. It was called a reverse uh, FOI. Um, and it was a really unique situation where actually the Pentagon was trying to get me the information uh, and, and they were stopped. But, you know, this is just big business. And, um, and you know, and, and this, is, this was the result of it. I'll tell you, this is the, uh, the my, as I listen to you, and I, I think I, you know, the, the emerging uh, word that comes to mind for me is apathy. Um, you know, and and individuals and organizations, whether they're very large organizations or not, who find themselves for whatever the reason, um, being asked to compromise their integrity, um, have a, it's a it's a career crossroad. Um, and we've had multiple people here, whether it was uh, Lieutenant General Leslie Smith, the uh, former Inspector General of the U.S. Army, uh, and other distinguished people. And the common word, the common thread um, has been integrity. And uh, what I'm thinking about is I'm hearing you talk about the folks at Sikorsky um, and and other uh, organizations that behave badly is it's a lack of integrity. At at the core, it's a lack of integrity. And if you're someone in a position of leadership or you're someone who is uh, uh, in a position to share information that uh, potentially could save lives or or impact lives. Um, choose integrity first. That's it sounds simple, it sounds simplistic, but really, at the end of the day, if you choose integrity, you're going to be able to sleep at night. You know, but but Tal, um, th- this issue is not you know exclusive to Sikorsky or this 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 one story. I you know I. There were there were so many examples I could cite. Another one would be uh, involving commercial airlines. That you know I again got a you know a random communication in the mail uh, from I believe a, an airline pilot uh, showing that that you know in in his case his particular airline was um, playing games in terms of of maintenance something called deferred maintenance where, and, and this is a common term throughout industry is that you defer maintenance, uh, depending on how important it is on, on items. Uh, and as long as you can, or how, as long as you legally can, and the airlines do this in terms of things that break on airplanes. Uh, and in this one case, there was a situation uh, in Connecticut where the autopilot wasn't working. And the pilot who's getting on board the the, the aircraft could see that that the, the um, that it was broken for like a week, and he got so angry he stormed off the aircraft and left. And that and uh, and and that it, it then came to me, uh, and what I discovered that is that this is a a frequent issue that airlines will defer maintenance on items. Uh, for as long as legally they they can, because maybe you know if you land in Hartford, uh, it's not a hub. There's no repair uh, station, so you have to wait until that aircraft uh, reaches Atlanta, where there are you know less expensive maintenance facilities. Um, and so this is something that that in, you know industry 
no matter what it is, always has to balance is is uh, is what you know w- the most uh, efficient way to get from A to B uh, and make judgments in terms of what is is safe safe and what is not. That's uh, I don't know. It, it first of all, that's crazy, <laughs> and and uh, thank you. Particularly for, when lives are at stake. Yeah, I mean, I think I you mean, know that's the part that that's hard for me to 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 wrap my mind around. And it's obviously I I, I I'm not naive, Alan. I I think you're absolutely right. These oftentimes tend to be decisions that are driven by uh, financial considerations. What always startles me is that there are human beings who are executing these decisions, and. At some point, particularly if the business you're in is a business that uh, puts people's lives at risk, uh, you should choose integrity. And maybe it's easy for me to say, but I actually don't think it's easy for me to say. I think I've been in situations and positions in my career where the right thing to do was not was very, very difficult and very painful. And I'm proud that I've chosen that. And I, I think the people who are in that position should choose that. And I guess my call out is if if you're somewhere where you are uh, being asked to compromise people's safety, um, don't. <laughs> Simple as that. Yeah. But you know, I, and and tell I've dealt with business people like you who have who have tried to do the right thing even when it was was difficult. But my experience as an investigative journalist has often been people do the right thing when when the lights come on. And, you know, in the, the Sikorsky case, and that's why journalism you know, is so important, by the way, yeah. it's one of, one of the big right. concerns and, and, I've got is, can we continue to have journalists like you out there exposing bad actors? Because that you're right. absolutely I, right. Sunlight is the greatest disinfector as the saying goes. Right. I mean, you know, I, when, when I was first investigating Sikorsky, I went to Washington and, and gave this material to the chairman uh, of the armed services committee. And I got a lot of nods. Okay. We'll look at it. They never did. They never did because of how significant this would be and the role of the, of the black Hawk in terms of the Gulf war or the, you know, uh, and everything that happened. And since then uh, it was only after you know, it became undeniable when I was able to show aircraft going down that it was impossible to make to defer uh, the the story because uh, of the outrage it would cause. It's it's infuriating, actually, right? I mean, yeah. uh, unfortunately, we as consumers always take for granted that everyone is acting in everyone else's best interest, especially when government's involved, right? The FAA or or whomever. You feel like Food and drug administration, right? You exactly. assume that or yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and it's, it's just a, it's just infuriating that, uh, we, we carry on our, our lives carefree. Meanwhile, there are bad actors out there, maybe not intentionally bad actors, right there. I don't think anyone's sitting there saying, I want to put defective parts on this plane. So it goes down. Uh, well, some might, but those I, are, two I would agree with you. No, I, I mean, I think that that's, that's the, that's the, 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 the part that that is so difficult it's that you have to imagine that no one is that evil right okay and so right. it, so if it's not about being evil then it's about being ignorant right oh i just didn't know mm-hmm. and then when someone like alan comes and tells you well here are the facts burying your head in the sand is the part that is very difficult for me to Correct. wrap my mind around. you know tell you you mentioned that this is why journalism is so important but this is what has me so concerned is that um the number of news outlets willing to do this kind of journalism has decreased. Uh, You know, profit margins are smaller than ever, ever because there are so many, you know, options for viewers to watch. So you can't charge as much uh, for, for commercials. If you get the story wrong, you could get sued and uh, for millions of dollars, uh, companies sometimes don't want to take that kind of risk. And people like me who, uh, have worked for years to master this art uh, are sometimes a little bit older and and have families and need to earn more money. And at a time when when uh, TV stations and newspapers uh, are are paying less and less. So are you going to trust you know somebody who's just out of school uh, to do this kind of work? Uh, and and obviously the the environment that we now live in right now, where uh, TV and and newspapers are you know under are under attack makes 
doing this kind of journalism much more difficult. You know, I, I have a friend who owns a, a public affairs firm in Tampa uh, that does crisis communications. And that business has been weak uh, because there's not a whole lot of investigative journalism going on anymore. And, you know, so it results in fewer people getting in trouble and needing crisis managers. It's it's nuts. And also, like, there's also just the influx of people who just put anything on social media at any time. Yeah. Hey, I, you know, I, I want a lot of views on TikTok. I'm going to talk about some weather pattern that I think is concerning, and I'm going to get tens of thousands of views on it, have people think that there's some big storm's coming. But there's no meteorological uh, knowledge behind this. This is just someone who's putting stuff out there. And, and as we get involved in our echo chambers and Hey, I like to hear, you know, I like what that person's saying versus some other story that I, I think is more uncomfortable to my truth. Well, then I go down that rabbit hole and it, I, I I'm just so frustrated with there's, there's cynicism in this world, but there's, there's a ton of like really just inane, dumb cynicism and where that cynicism is, is, uh, hurting themselves really. And I, I just, I don't know. <laughs> well, Sorry, you, you know, me. look, I, I think, uh, I, I, I don't want to, uh, send our, uh, audience into depression, No, sorry. uh, but Bye. you know, I, 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 I think, <laughs> I think the reality is this, um, my inclination is to believe that most people want to do good and most people want to do the right thing. Yep. Uh, sometimes good people find themselves in situations where, uh, their livelihood, their family's well-being seems to be um, uh, at risk if they take certain steps or certain decisions, yep. and uh, and that makes it difficult. I I I I believe that generally speaking, people uh, choose to do the right thing more often than not, uh, and that most people are um, well-intentioned. Maybe that's naive of me, but I I I choose to live my life that way because I think living it any other way. Um, leads you to act more selfishly and less, um, you know, less in, 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 in a way that reflects, um, less well on you and your environment, um, and creates less opportunities for people to, uh, come together. And that's ultimately something that I, I personally make the choice in my life to believe that people are good. Yeah. Um, and it's difficult to, to, to hear stories like, like the stories that Alan has uncovered and maybe Alan having been in journalism for, for so many years and, and you did ultimately choose to pivot out of it, which is an interesting story in and of itself. Yep. Um, maybe, maybe it's harder for you to be, uh, an optimist. I don't know. I mean, do, do you view, um, you know, the world through the lenses of, uh, most people are good as I do, or, or are you, do you, do you think it's more nuanced than that? I think it's nuanced because there, you know, you are right, Town, and I have dealt with many uh, people, businesses, organizations that are that are trying to do good in the world, and frankly, and the same thing in politics. Um, I know people on both sides of the political aisle who really do want to serve. And they may have different opinions in, in terms of political philosophies on the on the issues, but but they go there to try to make their community, their state, their country uh, a, a better place. Uh, right now, those voices are almost drowned out because when we look at our politics, whether we're talking about what's happening in Washington right now, or uh, in your state capital, or your or your 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 town or your city. Uh, it, it, it seems like a circus and a freak show too often. But despite that, there are people who go and, and are going there for the right reasons. So, you know, I that has always been a motivator uh, to, to me. Uh, and um, it, it should be uh, a, a motivator to, to all those who are watching right now that uh, there are good people out there and, and that's why they need our support. <laughs> yeah. Well, as, as, I, as I look at what you've chosen to do in your career, I mean, obviously being an investigative journalist and taking on, you know, entrenched interests is a risk. You then made a decision to run for office and you didn't run in a district that would have been uh, easy for you to win. You you ran in twice in a very difficult uh, district where there was a path, but it was certainly not an easy path. And, and you chose to fight the good fight. Um, and after that, you are now 
uh, helming a uh, an effort uh, to reform the Supreme Court, which, again, as I said in the beginning, and I'm not saying that uh, to be a negative Nancy, but because I think it's just it's hard to argue that 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 is not a, a difficult battle to fight. You seem willing to fight those battles, which, you know, either uh, has to mean that at some level you're an optimist and you believe uh, that you can prevail or just whatever it is that you view as justice can prevail uh, or you're fatalist and you're just going to fight the fight. Which is it and why? I I think it's because I'm an optimist. uh, And, you know, when you uh, seek to run for office, it it is always a gamble, um, even in the birth uh, the, uh, you know, the best circumstances, because even if you're running in a district that uh, is, 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 you know, a democratic district or a Republican district, you still would probably have to go through a primary to be able to, to, to uh, uh, you know, make it to uh, the general election. Uh, in in terms of the 2020 race, uh, the you know the reason why I what I thought was the opportunity uh, was that it was a targeted seat from the get go because you had a a first term incumbent who uh, was under criminal investigation for campaign finance uh, violations, and so the idea of a well-known investigative reporter going up against a politician uh, who was under criminal investigation, uh, you know, not only gave me reason to, you know, think that I could win, but also the party, uh, and, and a lot of other folks, uh, you know, believing that, that we could win. What we didn't realize is that, that, you know, incumbent who is under criminal investigation would be defeated in his own primary. (laughs) <laughs> which totally changed the circumstances uh, of the election. Uh, in, in terms of what I'm doing now, in terms of uh, term limit, the, the court, you know, it was born out of um, the idea that in the environment that we're living in right now, which is so incredibly polarized, uh, that term limits in general is something that has overwhelming public support. Uh, some states like Florida have term limits for the their state legislature for the is that you know, bipartisan support court. is support for yes. term limits bipartisan yes it, uh vastly in terms of uh, if you if you ask people whether you think that they should be term limits for Congress it's it's between 70 and 80 percent of all Americans uh in in terms of term limits for the Supreme Court uh it, it's also 65 70 percent of all Americans on our website, termlimitthecourt.com, the first quote you see is from John Roberts, who says, you know, 18 year term. Chief terms, Justice, the Republican, Republican appointed. Exactly. Uh, in terms of our, our advisory board, um, you know, we have uh, one member of the advisory board, uh, a, a former federal judge from, from Boston, who was on President Biden's. White House Commission on Supreme Court Reform. We also have the former Republican Attorney General of Idaho, who was a Supreme Court Justice in Idaho. Ted Cruz has uh, voiced his support for for um, uh, you know term limits on the Supreme Court. Yes, today uh, the politics make it more complicated, uh, but public opinion of the Supreme Court right now is so low uh, that. You know, we believe and we are taking the long road that this is not something that's going to be accomplished today or tomorrow. But, you know, we are building a robust campaign uh, that is designed for five or, or, or 10 years uh, because, you know, this is what the public uh, clearly wants. You know, I was in Washington uh, last week, uh, you know, announcing this effort corresponding to a new bill that's being filed uh, in, in Congress. And uh, Congressman Dan Goldman from, from New York uh, said the Supreme Court should not be uh, in, in the palm of either party. And this is something that the, the, the vast majority of, of Americans actually is a, agree to. And, and so when you have such overwhelming public support, um, you know, it, it will be our job to help get elected uh people on both sides of the aisle who agree with that and and um and the best way to to do that is to build a movement build friends and 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 allies uh to achieve this goal and and that's what we're we're trying to do 
Well, I think you got uh, I think you got two new people in your <laughs> in your movement today just from this podcast. I mean, that's first of all, I, I I totally agree. I think it's such a high concept idea and it's so true that there needs to be term limits. There shouldn't be, you know, a lifelong commitment of of doing one job. Uh, it just <laughs> there's a lot to go into that. But I there is and and the one other point I would make uh, because people often ask this question and, and you know, this is something that is going to be difficult but it it is not impossible because the white house commission that has looked at this and other legal scholars uh say this doesn't necessarily have to be done by a constitutional amendment which you know not only needs a a, a vast majority of congress but then two-thirds of of the state to get enacted in, into into law uh it is believed that this could be done by legislation, by offering 18-year terms on the Supreme Court where justices then obtain senior status, which is the way it is in the rest of the federal judiciary. You get around the requirement of a constitutional amendment. So basically, you need a bill that is passed by Congress and signed into law by the president. And uh, that's what gives us the belief that this is something uh, that can be done. Wow. So... So let's talk about you in particular real real quick. You've you've done this amazing transition. You went from distinguished journalism career to running for Congress to now this awesome nonprofit. Um, I'm sure that has required some soul searching, some deep thinking, some private time where you're collecting your thoughts about all this. Uh, there's a lot of people out there, including many in our audience, who have gone through, and myself included, some stark career transitions seeing where you are now what do you what do you tabulate as something that you've done right something that you think you might have done better and um it, in terms of like preparing yourself for these steps and and as well as uh getting your family ready for the challenges involved well i've been extraordinarily uh, lucky that i have a very supportive uh family uh, you know, my wife uh, is a former journalist herself. Uh, that's how we met, uh, covering uh, news in, in Springfield, Massachusetts. And she has always been incredibly supportive of, of what I do, which is no small thing because with for all the stories that I've been talking about, there is an element of personal risk. Uh, and that's something I, I thought less about before I was married and had children. It is something that you have to take into account Um when when you you do have a a family i know for myself personally i have always been at my best when i am pursuing something that is incredibly interesting to, to me uh journalism and television uh and the process in in in, in which i would have to uh, you know that it took to 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 produce stories or, or to produce a really good show uh, has always been uh, a challenge and and fascinating to me uh and i enjoyed doing that for for many many years until frankly the business model uh, uh has changed as i have described that you know it's it, it's very hard for for uh, you know, corporations at this point with declining profits to uh, support, uh, you know, quality journalism. And I do not believe in in mediocrity. I don't want to uh, be mediocre about no matter what I, I did. And so when I looked around in terms of, of what I could and wanted to do, um, I look for what are my skills and and what else can I do uh, that kind of you know goes into the skills that I have and what I enjoyed most about uh, you know my career and and as we've talked about um, what I enjoyed the most about journalism is seeing the impact that that I could have locally and and nationally and I looked at politics and and uh, said this is something also I could have an impact on. Um, you know, uh, and, you know, uh, I, you know, I believe my skills uh, in the Congress are sorely needed these these days. Uh, and in terms of the endeavor that that I'm, I'm in right now, um, it's an important issue. Um, and I am not running as a candidate myself, but I'm running for a, a cause. I want to bring to that endeavor 
uh, the skills that I have as a writer, as a communicator, uh, and and hopefully have an impact on 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 that issue. So, you know, sometimes these decisions are, are born out of either the opportunity that comes along um, and the need uh, to keep moving forward. Uh, and uh, and and that's why I am <laughs> where I am right now. You know, I, I uh, obviously you and I have known each other for some time. I, I've had the uh, pleasure of being interviewed by you um, uh, and, and getting to know you as an individual, knowing your family. Um, and um, you know, I I've always been impressed with your 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 deep love uh, for your community. Uh, and it showed up, I think, as a journalist, and it showed up uh, when you were running for Congress, and it's showing up what you're doing now. Because taking on these fights, um, it, somebody needs to do it, um, and it takes a special person to do it. And I, um, you know, I just want to commend you on that. Uh, we we had other guests who have also talked about transition. I'm thinking of Xavier Scruggs, who's now uh, uh, the host of uh, Baseball Tonight on ESPN, who talked about love, transitioning from all the time. Yeah, transitioning <laughs> from uh, from being a, a major league baseball player uh, to becoming um a you know a broadcaster and uh what he recommended uh to people and obviously i i encourage people to go listen to the podcast it was a great interview uh was you know first of course find something you're passionate about then find something you're good at uh ask people what am i good at what do you think i'm good at um and, and obviously you may know the answer yourself and it sounded like you know you you have a, a very clear sense of of what you're passionate about what you're good at uh, and, and it always seems to center around, uh, doing something, you know, that will benefit the greater community. Um, and you know, if, if you're motivated, um, and I'm talking to our audience here, if you're motivated by, uh, doing something good, um, you know, find causes that you're really passionate about and dedicate yourself to them, whether it's your full-time vocation or something you do on the side. And, um, you know, if nothing else, and I think Alan, you're uh, the embodiment of that, uh, you're not going to have regrets because if you're doing something you really believe in and you're passionate about uh, and that you think is important, uh, then whether or not at the end of the day, uh, what you're fighting for becomes, um, you know, becomes law or becomes whatever it is, um, the fighting the fight is in and of itself uh, a, a very honorable thing to do. And and on that point, I, I you know, you gave us a quote uh, about your philosophy of life, which I thought was uh, interesting because he chose Rocky Balboa. <laughs> uh, and the quote was, it ain't about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward, how much you can take and keep moving forward. And obviously we're a podcast about setbacks, overcoming them, perseverance. Right. Uh, I'd love for you to tell me where that, where does that spirit of resilience come from and how do you maintain it? Because I have to imagine, uh, you know, sometimes it's the middle of the night and it's three in the morning and you're staring in the ceiling and you're going through career transition or you're going through whatever you're going through. Uh, and it's, I have to imagine there's some doubts. I have to imagine there's some questions you ask yourself. How do you get through those moments? What, what advice would you give our audience that maybe, uh, an audience member that may be going through that kind of point in their own lives or career? Well, first thing, there's no alternative. I mean, uh, you have to earn a living. You have to provide for your family. And if that's not motivation enough, then, then you're in trouble. Um, and, uh, there's been something I, maybe I can't put my finger on it, but I've, since I was a kid, I've always known what I want, wanted to do. Uh, and, you know, getting into television news was really difficult. And, and back in the day, the, what, what you would have to do is you would have to send out your resume and a cover letter and a videotape of, uh, of yourself, um, uh, to news directors. And, uh, it was the most frustrating thing in the world. I would be waiting by the mailbox every day to see what, what comes out. I would send out resumes to places, uh, you know, from Presque Island, Maine to Nome, Alaska and get rejected. I would have people, if, if you remember Charles Osgood from, from CBS News, he was my, my mentor. He was uh, the person who taught me everything I knew about writing news. Uh, and I remember him calling news directors for me and getting frustrated about the reception that he would get on my behalf. Uh, but this is what I wanted to do. Um, and I never gave up. So um, 
you know, there there is no quit. I mean, quitting is not an option. You you have to, you know, be smart and and know what's working and, and what's not working. But and, and let me give you another example of it. You know, I said that, you know, my my first summer after I graduated high school, I got a job, you know, uh, during the CBS News convention coverage uh, of the presidential election. The next summer, there were no jobs. There was no, it was an off year political um, year. And so I, you know, growing up in New York, um, you know, I went to every network, every TV, every radio station in New York City, uh, and I banged on doors to, to you know, get, get a job. I got thrown out of lobbies. And I remember going back to my dad's office one day and said, I'm going to go back to CBS. And he goes, no, you're not. You, you're worn out. You're welcome there. there. There's no job there. Let's, you know, figure out something else. But, um, you know, I didn't take that as an answer. And I went back to CBS and I kind of, um, you know, I had my, my old convention ID. I snuck into the building. I snuck into the newsroom and I started talking to people. And, you know, somebody said to me, you know what? We had an opening, but we don't have it anymore. Why don't you go upstairs to the 10th floor and fill out an application at HR? And I, I went upstairs. And I'm filling out the application. The phone rings in the background. And a woman comes in and says, you're Alan Cohen? And I go, yes. And go, well, they want you down in the newsroom. Somebody quit at that moment. And I was hired to work overnight, six nights a week, in the newsroom at CBS News, which was the greatest honor of my life. That's what I mean in terms of, you know, you have to have determination. And Tal, when, when you uh, requoted the Rocky to me, that little snippet is something that, that I remember vividly, even over the last few months, because I think, as you know, uh, my son uh, is a, a pitcher for the Oakland A's organization. And um he has made it to where he is today because he would not take no. Uh, when people said, uh, you know, it, it, I mean, your chances of, of making it to college baseball is very, very rare. Your chances of making it to the pros is, is very, very rare. Well, he did. And over the course of this season, you know, as many athletes have, uh, you have your ups and your downs. And uh, one night I found uh, that quote from Rocky. And, and I sent it to him because it really, uh, you know, encapsulizes um, what you need to to do to be successful, no matter what you do in life. And that is, we're all going to get punched. And the, the 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 question isn't how hard you know um, you could punch back. It's a matter how hard you could get punched and get up and move forward. And um, you know, I don't think I really know any other way to be successful uh, in business uh, or in life. That's amazing. That's awesome. That's, um, it also gives me hope. It's very inspirational, especially with your son, because um, currently I tout myself as being the fifth string punter for the Chicago bears. So um, I'm just, I'm, I'm waiting for my moment to shine. Um, it's been, it's been an amazing interview and learning so much about you and, and so many uh, intriguing things that you, you covered today. So thank you for all of that. Um, what, as a lasting bit of advice, what piece of advice would you give our listeners who are searching the nonprofit side of things or to, to be an entrepreneur in nonprofit arena or um, considering the nonprofit world for a career? What, what piece of advice would you give them? But you know the the one thing that that I've been thinking about when I've been thinking before we we did this this podcast, knowing what the thrust of this podcast is, and if if you're out there and you're working in the corporate world and you you're seeking to get involved in in nonprofit work, um, although there are things that are different, there are are skills that you are are quite compatible. For instance. Uh, the job of my organization right now is not to make a profit to satisfy investors uh, or, or or stockholders or board of directors. Um, the goal of, of making a profit in terms of what, what we're doing right now is to pay staff that you know you know people in the corporate world would would understand, but also to uh, 
to succeed in terms of a strategic goal. If you're running for office, it is meaning to 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 win uh, office and and serve. Uh, in terms of what we're doing now, the strategic goal is to bring about term limits for for the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, so it is the same but different. You have to use the same kind of business strategies. We have, uh, you know, um, uh, social media. We ha- we are reaching out to uh, people, asking them to contribute to our our efforts. It's no different than um, trying to buy, you know, to to get uh, people to buy your 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 product. You have to sell them. You have to use all the the techniques that modern business. Uh, uses to achieve that goals. You're just applying it in in a different way. Uh, so, what I would say to people is, if this is something that is of interest to you in terms of working in the nonprofit world, to to go for it. You will find uh, the skills that you've always had are applicable, uh, and you'll have to learn new uh, skills. But that is the truth. You know, the same thing, no matter what you do in life. Excellent. Our guest today was Alan Cohn. He's a Peabody and Emmy Award-winning journalist. He's uh, run for political office. He is a businessman who's now uh, the CEO of the nonprofit Term Limits the Court, uh, which I believe people can find online at termlimitthecourt.com. Uh, and uh, you know, I, I'm grateful for you being here today. I think that uh, a lot of what you had to share, particularly around uh, bad actors, is is interesting. And, and even though um, you know, it's, it's, I wish there were simple answers and it wasn't necessarily that I was looking for the one answer. I think the point of the matter is we just don't understand what motivates people. Um, we can make some assumptions. Um, and at the end of the day, my goal with this podcast and the reason that I agree to host it is because my objective is to, um, help people see that you can do the right things and make the right choices and act with integrity and lead with love. And still be successful, and I genuinely believe that that's the case. Uh, that's been my experience, and it's been the experience of a lot of people I respect a lot. Um, and I hope that uh, you know um, that resonates with uh, with people, even as they, uh, even as we all acknowledge that there are people in the world that don't do the right thing. Uh, unfortunately, I, I also would be remiss if I didn't. Uh, all kidding aside, uh, say to anyone that's listening, we are PJ and I are so grateful uh, mm. for. For you listening to us, we are deeply, deeply humbled uh, to have uh, uh, done as well as we have. Uh, we'll continue to work very hard every single day uh, and to bring you guests that hopefully will inform and and share uh, interesting stories like Alan here. Um, and I'd also ask you if you uh, enjoy this podcast, please tell friends about it. Uh, definitely rate us in whichever uh, uh, streaming platform uh, you happen to be listening on. Um, and if you're into it, join our website, uh, www.bravingbusiness.com. We have a, a, a very interesting blog that you can subscribe to and receive uh, in your inbox. So, Alan, thank you so much for being our guest today. Uh, PJ, thank you as always. My pleasure. And thank you. Uh, we look forward to bringing you more episodes and and uh, whatever you're doing out there, keep braving it. Thanks so much. Take care. And that's a wrap, folks. Like what you heard? Want to support the show? Please follow our page on LinkedIn and Facebook. Visit us on YouTube and please like and rate us on all of your favorite podcast streaming services. You can also see exclusive content, subscribe for free to our weekly blog, support our sponsors, and soon buy our merchandise at www.bravingbusiness.com. Thanks for being a part of our production, and we'll see you next time on the Braving Business Podcast. Mm-hmm.